This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome to the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Today, part two of our Mardi Gras special. It's 40 years since an audacious gay rights rally in June 1978 evolved to become the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras that we know today. In our previous episode, Maeve Marsden took us back to the late 70s and early 80s, Mardi Gras' very early years. Today, we go from boom to bust. We leap across the decades to land in the new millennium, when Mardi Gras, after years of giddy expansion, came to the brink of collapse. Our story begins on Sydney's famous Oxford Street and a search for the ghosts of the city's gay ghetto. Enjoy Mardi Gras Supernova. Into the change rooms. Okay, here we go. So we're now entering the staircase, which was the entrance to the change rooms. Theo Onosforo is the proprietor of the building on Oxford Street in Sydney that used to be the Albury Hotel. Yeah. Feels a bit dungeony, doesn't it? No windows, no natural light. The Albury was famous through the 80s and 90s for nightly drag shows. What do you do now? A professional dancer. Just a drag queen now. Just a drag queen. Don't put yourself down. Where we are now is what was the change rooms. And so when I bought the property, there were some remnant pieces of clothing which were undoubtedly used in the shows. It's not a pub anymore. At the moment, it houses part of St Vincent's Hospital. Theo has a complicated mix of emotions about the place, including pride in its colourful history. Those live shows is what led to the movie Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Delight in its architectural style. Such an outstanding example of an Art Deco building. And regret at his own role in the pub's demise. At the time, I was not sensitive enough to understand the life that was within it. And within a year of buying the hotel, I closed it down. I wanted the music to play on forever. Theo turned the Albury Hotel into a retail premises. Have I stayed too long at the fair? That was late 2001. Soon, other long-standing gay hotels in the area closed their doors too, or were put up for sale. It's a chicken or the egg. The question is, was I a follower or was I a leader? I don't know. But with the benefit of hindsight, I regret converting it to retail. I'm Maeve Marsden, and while Theo was turning the Albury Hotel into a sportswear shop, I was graduating high school. I'd been to school in the inner city, travelling up Oxford Street each day, watching it change. I remember going to my first Mardi Gras party soon after I'd turned 18. We snuck back into the school grounds across the road to stash our bags for the night so we could dance unencumbered. I don't know why we didn't just use the coat check. Nostalgia, maybe. We were excited, my friends and I, to come out to discover our city as adults. But just at that moment, as the sun was setting on the 20th century, gay life in Sydney seemed to be losing its luster. 
And it wasn't just Oxford Street. At Mardi Gras headquarters, they were feeling it too. We started to notice uh, a change in 2001 in terms of the party sales. This is Julie Regan, president of Mardi Gras in 2001 and 2002. We could see that happening and we were hoping that that would reverse, but it didn't. Party ticket sales kept Mardi Gras afloat. It had been that way since the first post-parade party at Paddington Town Hall in 1980. Throughout the 90s, the parties put on by Mardi Gras at the showgrounds were the hottest tickets in town. Robert Reynolds remembers it. The huge demand, they would sell out. There'd be these controversies about whether people who weren't identified as gay or lesbian should go. You know, there were times when people would be left marooned because they didn't get the ticket. It was a real sense of you had to get in early, you had to make sure you got your ticket because you didn't want to be left stranded. There would have been a few people left stranded after the 2000 Mardi Gras. All 22,000 tickets to the after-party had been snapped up months in advance. But in 2001, just one year later, for the first time in 10 years, the Mardi Gras after-party didn't sell out. It was a sign of things to come. It was a very interesting time to be working at the Sydney Star Observer. David Mills was a journalist with the local gay newspaper at the time. Part of what drew me to work there was what I'd seen about the Sydney gay community in the 1990s and the fabulousness of Mardi Gras was a big part of that. And then when I started work at the Sydney Star Observer in 1999, it seemed to be just the moment where things started to go a bit pear-shaped. And so I was having to write about organisations struggling rather than building or things getting a bit more difficult than they had been in the kind of heyday years of the 1990s. I think we were kind of caught between moments in a way. If you look at the struggle for gay law reform, for example, a lot of the big successes had been and gone. So that decriminalisation of homosexuality in uh, New South Wales in 1984 and relationship recognition legislation was coming on board in the 1990s. But we were still a long way away from the push for same-sex marriage, which really took another 10 years to take root here in Australia. Another factor in all this was HIV, of course. In the 1980s, that was obviously a terrible tragedy, but it was also something that galvanised the community. And by the late 1990s, HIV was now being reclassified as a chronic manageable condition. So a lot of the activism around HIV had kind of fallen into a, a bit of a lull. So we had a couple of years there where it was kind of The big battles had been fought. We thought that we were reasonably equal and there was that kind of sense of, oh, what now? Do we just move out to the suburbs? Where does the fight go? Is there anything worth fighting for? Mardi Gras had been integral to those battles in the 80s and 90s. Now that they had been won, was Mardi Gras becoming redundant? Well, when I was writing in the mid-2000s, that's how I kind of couched it. This is historian Robert Reynolds. As to some degree a victim of its own success, or be careful what you wish for, because if you wish for mainstream acceptance, then a byproduct of that may be that the kind of excessiveness that Mardi Gras had been known for in the 80s and into the 90s may become less apparent and maybe less needed. Yeah, the community was changing. I think, well, society was changing. There was a shift to slightly more acceptance, I think, for younger people growing up that had Mardi Gras. They had that opportunity to be out and free and open in a way that the 78ers onwards, some of us are a little bit older, we had to fight a little bit harder for that. 
But Mardi Gras wasn't behaving like an organisation facing potential redundancy. During the 90s, it just got progressively bigger. It became incredibly sprawling. Organisationally, it got a little bit self-important and seduced by its own hype. An assumption underpinned that, I think, that being gay and lesbian was completely all-encompassing part of who you were. And so, of course, this huge festival could exist because being gay and lesbian was just so vital and crucial to people and that they would just populate. Around the same time, from the mid-90s onwards, you get people starting to talk about the post-gay phenomenon. This sense that being gay was one identity strand amongst a number for any individual and that there was less and less of a need to organise politically or socially around a sexual identity because it was becoming more and more mainstream. At the same time, the possibilities for queer revelry outside the Mardi Gras silo were multiplying. Fiona McGregor described it in her book, Chemical Palace. The parties got bigger, the tickets more expensive, strangers outnumbered friends, the community grew. Splintered, multiplied, mutated, atrophied, sprang up elsewhere. The random march of queer seeding the world. People were always looking for something new. So much good partying led to high standards. There were never enough places to go for aficionados. Rebel parties became institutions. Alternative parties had the advantage of being cheaper too. The price of Mardi Gras party tickets really started to bite after the showgrounds where they were held were privatised in the late 90s. Then the collapse of HIH in 2001 meant big increases in public liability insurance, the boring but essential part of party planning. Mardi Gras recouped the extra costs by upping the price of tickets. In 98, a ticket to the Mardi Gras party was just $70. By 2001, it was 110 no wonder ticket sales were taking a hit. And the competition kept on coming. Sydney landed another international sporting event today, the Gay Games, in the year 2002. Mardi Gras is already the most lucrative tourism event in Australia every year, and the Gay Games would be about double or triple that normal impact. I mean, look at Sydney. It's one of the gay centres of the world. We're a sporting country. We're more than ready. But where was the money going to come from? I'll give you one guess. To fund the gay games, the organisers opted for a strategy where they staged five big dance parties. And so in that year, there was a crowded market for dance parties. Success would depend on overseas visitors. We heard a big bang and then we saw smoke coming out and we saw the plane on the other side of the building. The United States has been hit by a terrorist attack like no other. We have taken all appropriate security precautions to protect the American people. And that was sort of like, I think, as we know now, it was a pivotal moment for the world. For me, I look back on that and think, OK, well, that's when a lot of things change for all of us. This is Julie Regan again, president of Mardi Gras at the time. Americans came to the party quite regularly. They were a big component of our advanced income. So we knew that that was going to be a challenge for us to make up the numbers. And we could see that happening pretty much straight away in terms of the party bookings for 2002. That's when we had to start to think about, OK, well, we need to actually sort of start to pull back. Difficult to do when you're moving forward into February, March, and you're sort of in November, December, to pull back in the way that you needed to. 
So we couldn't really rein it in. We went ahead with the organisation and sort of made some money, but it then became obvious that it wasn't the profits that we needed. The carnival may be over for Sydney's gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. It's announced an estimated loss of more than half a million dollars. It all came to a head when Mardi Gras released its financial report for 2001-2002 and revealed that they had posted a $538,000 loss, which was far and away the biggest loss that the organisation had ever recorded. On a Saturday afternoon in late June, a community forum was held at the Mardi Gras headquarters. It was a crisis meeting. Mardi Gras was facing financial collapse and they wanted to bring the community up to date about where things were at. They were also trying to marshal guarantors, but it did become a broader event for people to air their grievances about the organisation. It was a very heated meeting. It was a very big meeting. And there was a lot of anger and dissatisfaction expressed at that meeting. That's when a lot of people went, well, why the hell weren't we told about this earlier? But if we had have gone out earlier, it probably would have caused a run on creditors and we would have had uh, a very difficult situation. It would have gone into insolvency. People were bringing up all kinds of issues. I remember there was one guy, he got up and he railed against the lack of political direction from Mardi Gras. And I remember he said, give us something to be angry about. And this statement got a good round of applause. So there was that sense that Mardi Gras was just a, like a party organisation nowadays and it had lost its political edge. Bev Lang, a former president of Mardi Gras, was a critical voice at the meeting too. Later, she spoke to ABC Radio. The struggle to get mainstream recognition and the success of sponsorship in the mid-90s has been a burden for Mardi Gras to balance against the real grassroots and community nature of the organisation. I mean, that was how it was so successful. You know, a thousand volunteers on the parade route and a great engagement from people within our community about the sorts of things Mardi Gras stands for. And I think there's a bit more of a question about what Mardi Gras stands for at the moment. The deadline for securing funds to cover the deficit was the 1st of August. The following morning, Mardi Gras' embattled president called a press conference. As of nine o'clock this morning, um, the board of Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras has placed the organisation into voluntary administration. It hurt. <laughs> it hurt, yeah. It hurt a lot of people. Yeah, it hurt a lot of my friends. Because, we, you know, we'd realised... There was something very important that we could have lost. And it's not just a big party, you know. It's a lot more than that if you look into the history. I'm Cubby. I've been involved in Mardi Gras since about 1989. When Cubby says involved in Mardi Gras, he doesn't mean in the boardroom. Sort of pride myself on being on the outside. Cubby's involvement has been artistic. It all started in the lead-up to the 89 parade when he paid a visit to the Mardi Gras workshop. That was the year that the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were making the infamous Fred Nile head on a platter. I had no artistic background, so it was an eye-opener for me regarding art and politics and humour for fighting back against oppression. Barely a parade has passed since the late 1980s that doesn't feature some mischief from Cubby and his crew. The Dick Van Dykes on Bikes in 98, Surrey Hillsong in 2009, Happy Bernardi Gras, that was this year, and who could forget the Happy Little Sodomites back in 2000.
There were 10 of us dressed in sodomite jars. They were sort of full body with our heads sticking out and our arms and our legs. So we paraded up Oxford Street with a huge big sodomite jar on the back of a ute. At the time Mardi Gras collapsed, the workshop was in Erskineville, and it was an awesome place. There'd been talk of trying to buy that space, which is now a Woolworths supermarket. Imagine now if you know Mardi Gras owned that space. And that's sort of one thing that I thought over the years. There just seemed to be a lot of money spent making the parties bigger and that sort of thing, where maybe a little bit more financial now by the accountants or whatever, we could have had a permanent workshop purchased. Mardi Gras assets were not the kind that you could borrow money against. When the administrators took over, the tangible assets, such as they were, were auctioned in a fire sale at the Erskineville workshop. Cubby went to have a look. I think it was, it was a Saturday. I went down there. It was out of curiosity and a bit of trepidation. And actually, one of my items was in, was in the lot. There was a person from the Powerhouse Museum there to see what they could grab for their collection. He said, oh, I'm sort of after that sodomite jar. Just looking in that workshop and just sort of seeing what we were about to lose was quite painful, so I didn't hang around, but I maybe bumped into him a few weeks later. I said, oh, did you get the sodomite jar? And he said, oh, no, it, it went for too much money. And I thought, oh, my God, they must have raised thousands for Mardi Gras, you know, with my sodomite jar. I said, how much did it go for? He said, $90. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. The stakes were high for Cubby when Mardi Gras went under. Less so for Robert Reynolds. Yeah, no, personally, it didn't move me. And I think in 2002, it didn't move a lot of people. I wasn't the only one saying, let it go. There was a quote at the time, a gay activist saying, Mardi Gras is absolutely central to gay life in Sydney, New South Wales and Australia. And I just thought, is that the case? Robert's first Mardi Gras was around the same time as Cubby's. He made the trek from Melbourne as a student. I think it was in 1990. That was kind of the first time I'd actually been, because in those days from Melbourne, you'd just take the train up. I will say, though, that was my first time looking at gay Sydney, Oxford Street. And I do distinctly remember this, getting to Oxford Street and thinking, is this it? Is this what all the fuss is about? I thought it was some kind of magical land. It's just a street. Steph Sands arrived on the scene much later. I was relatively new when Mardi Gras went into administration in 2002. I hadn't volunteered before, so I was just somebody who happened to be between jobs and They were calling for help and I had had a fantastic experience that year at the party. I'd been to the parade and I'd been out with some of my friends and I decided that I wanted to go to the Mardi Gras party for the first time in my life. So at 2am I arrived at the gate and I was told there were no tickets and I couldn't get in. So instead of actually walking home, I just walked around the corner and found this really cute girl and this other boy and they were trying to get in too. So I struck up a conversation with the security guard a bit further down the fence near the dome and in the end we bribed him to let us in the gate. I had a wonderful time. That party was amazing and very special to me and when it all went under I felt so guilty that I hadn't paid for that ticket that I thought I had to do my bit to help bring this back up. By the time Mardi Gras went under, Robert Reynolds was living in Sydney. People I was talking to were kind of like, you know, if it fails, it fails. So what? That's fine. We'll live without it. There wasn't a huge amount of passion. 
about keeping Mardi Gras? Mm, I think it was a time where the relevance was questioned, but I think we all knew that, especially the people I was hanging around with, that we still needed this. We weren't ready for us not to have something like Mardi Gras. I think the conversation about whether or not Mardi Gras should be allowed to die was a big conversation amongst a small group of people. This is Michael Woodhouse. There were thousands of people who still wanted to march in the parade, to come to Fair Day, to watch the parade, to attend a party, for whom this was absolutely a thing they wanted to continue to do. A group of people in the community decided to come together and have a go, to put our hands up and form a new board and be the group through which people in the community could organise to make sure this event continued. The recovery effort was led by four community organisations, Pride, ACON, the Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby and Queer Screen. Like Mardi Gras, these organisations had emerged from the grassroots of the gay and lesbian community in an era when government support couldn't be counted on. If Mardi Gras failed, they might too. It was pretty rough and ready for those first few months. We were trying to work out what the immediate next step was and frankly, who could help us. I did, I answered an ad in the paper and I ended up joining their marketing and comms group and um, by December they'd asked me to join their, their Phoenix board. We spent the first few months trying to raise enough money to buy out the name and the trademarks of the old organisation. We were very worried that there was a corporate somewhere that would want to snap these up for a bargain in a fire sale and that we would lose control of this event as a community. Cubby had seen enough of fire sales. I actually think I wrote a letter to the Star Observer at the time and said, if someone wants to buy that IP and try to put the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras parade together, well, good luck. You know, you might have a brand, you might have a logo, but the humour, the satire, the wit, the politics, that's the community, that's the IP. By November, New Mardi Gras had raised enough funds to secure the rights to keep the name, the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. To run it and to pay outstanding creditors, they needed more. I do distinctly remember a Friday night where at about 10pm at night I wandered down to the Imperial with our collection bucket got up there, gave a quick speech, and then passed that bucket around the cabaret bar at the back of the Imperial Hotel, watching people putting $50 notes in and anything else they could contribute. When it came to identity categories, New Mardi Gras couldn't afford to be fussy. One really interesting difference between the old Mardi Gras and the new Mardi Gras was about the question of bisexual membership. As a journalist, David Mills had covered the meeting at Mardi Gras just two years earlier, when members had voted to exclude bisexuals. It's really interesting to look now at that moment because we're so used to thinking in terms of the LGBTIQ community. Back then, we perceived it more as the gay and lesbian community. But when New Mardi Gras came in, they made some overtures to the bisexual groups and just said, look, you're in we're all in this together and we need your support. We really appreciate it. Interestingly, Mardi Gras actually did plan to take this even further. Not long after they launched, they floated the idea of taking the words gay and lesbian out of the title of the parade. So it would just become the Sydney Mardi Gras. That idea was shot down very, very quickly because people thought, no, we want to draw the line somewhere. We still wanted to have its queer flavour. We ended up sticking to the original name. There was a lot of uh, history a lot of emotion attached to that name, but we also ran the tagline across everything. It was celebrating 25 years of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer culture. And it was all focused around the party, getting people to that party. I remember having meetings with the Mayor of South Sydney, with the Lord Mayor at the time, to say, look, we really need your help. 
what is it that you can contribute and uh, how can we get some of that contribution as early as possible so that we can start to employ a few contractors or have some deposits on the equipment that we needed. There were board members putting bank checks into the safes of venues that we were hiring. We were doing a lot of those really quite close to the wire decisions so that we could make sure we had enough cash flow to run these events. The big night arrived, the 1st of March 2003. Steph Sands watched the parade from an elevated spot at Taylor Square. It seemed smaller and it seemed less extravagant than what it had in previous years. And that may have been that we couldn't afford the big floats anymore, to build the big floats anymore, but it was almost like the community had followed. And after the parade, the party. DJs played for free that year. That's how important it was to everyone to actually make sure this was successful. And, and about midway through the party, the treasurer, Nick Parker at the time, walked into the, the little VIP room that's above the toilets. And he came in and he announced that we had sold out. And at that time, that VIP room wasn't VIPs. It was just all the volunteers who had helped make this happen. And everyone in that room was hugging and kissing and just so happy because we knew that because we'd sold out 17,230 something tickets, that we were going to be okay. I can love you forever tonight. It keeps turning up every year. Every year the praise there, every year they get lots of people. There still seems to be a desire to come together. And I think, you know, maybe I underestimated that. And of course, what you do get in the last 10 years has been marriage equality, the debates around marriage equality. It was funny, the night that the marriage equality referendum, not the legislation, but the referendum was announced, because I live close to Oxford Street, I made a conscious effort to see what Oxford Street was like on that night. And it was extraordinary. It just, it felt like I'd been transported back 15, 20 years in time to the Mardi Gras week. But it was extraordinary because it was so unusual, because that is not how that street has been like for the last 10, 15 years. So I think there has been a revitalisation of gay politics, but also a particular form of gay politics, because its idea was, well, we want to live like others do and get access to a ceremony for ongoing partnerships. So it's funny that it's a debate that drew people together, but also I think is part of a larger process of mainstreaming and of dispersing the old gay world. There's no turning back the tide of history. New generations emerge and interact with a changing social fabric and identity gets expressed in new ways. We don't know what will happen to Mardi Gras in the next 40 years, but the story of its near death and resurrection shows that it's able to adapt with the times and is a heartening reminder that when the chips are down, the queer community rallies and comes together. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Hey. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. You've been listening to the final episode of A History of the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. 
The program was presented by Maeve Marsden and produced by Catherine Franey and Scott McKinnon. The sound engineer was Mark Don. And if you missed it, you can check out the first episode, The Making of Mardi Gras, at RN's History Listen website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rebecca Huntley. This is the History Listen. Thanks for your company. Listener.